Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ASA Podcast. I'm your host Joseph Coyne and this is episode 56. Now besides all the awesome guests we managed to somehow convince to go on this podcast, this podcast is brought to you and the other coaches, physios, teachers out there by Val Performance. They make the Nordboard, the force frame, human track and force decks. Now obviously the Nordboard is huge for hamstring assessment and deciding how to approach prevention of injury in the hamstrings. Four sticks is also an awesome tool for jumps and, and tests like the isometric mid-thigh pull or squat or, or also the new ash test for the shoulders. So look, in my experience, all of our products are very, very user-friendly and give you data you can action on immediately. So if you're in the market, please reach out to them, valveperformance.com or shoot them, an e- shoot them an email, info at valveperformance.com. Now, I've also got to mention the upcoming ASCA conference in November. Uh, yours truly will be speaking at this this year on things I've learned from track and field, as well as a collection of absolute superstars from the strength and conditioning industry. Check out strengthconditioning.org.au for more details. Make sure you sign up to it. It's going to be a cracker. Now, the guest for this episode, number 56, is the one, the only, Jeremy Shepard. Uh, Jeremy, he's the Director of Performance Solutions with the Canadian Sports Institute, which is in partnership with Canadian Snowboard, uh, where he works as an off-snow coach for Slopestyle and Big Air, as well as being accountable for the other five Olympic snowboard disciplines. Prior to this, and this is where I really uh, got to know Jeremy, was at Surfing Australia. He was the head of strength and conditioning there and also the sports science manager. He's also been at Queensland Academy of Sport, Australian Institute of Sport, and the Canadian Sports Centre. He's worked all over the world, uh, Commonwealth, Olympic medalist, also consults with, with companies like Hurley and Nike and Performance Matters. Um, so he's, he's, he's done it all. He's... Uh, Certified with the ASCA and the National Strength and Conditioning Association as a master coach and coach emeritus. Um, and what, what's more, he's conducted numerous research projects, over 100 peer-reviewed research manuscripts, abstracts, as well as 13 book chapters. So he, he's the real deal. Now, in this interview, we dive into how to strategically improve jumping ability, working with action sports like surfing and snowboarding, performance models and their frameworks, and the importance of mobility and extremity, like the hand and foot function, along with much, much more. And there's a wealth of uh, wisdom you'll get from this podcast. So look, let's throw the headphones on and have a listen to what Jeremy has to say. All right, we've got Dr. Jeremy Shepard on the line. Welcome, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. Mate, pleasure to have you on. Absolutely, it's, a, it's an honour considering our relationship to have you on the SASA podcast and it's been a long time coming, my friend. Uh, mate, we've got to start at the start with everything and I, I want to know and the, the listeners want to know how and why did it begin for you? How did your experience in SNC start? Yeah, um, I mean, really, I guess in, in high school um, and even before that, like in kind of, I'm going to even say like, grade school, like primary school, I kind of noticed that I liked just observing the the different ways that you could do training, not so much formally, because like, let's face it, everyone in this profession loved PE in the fifth grade, right? Like we all, we all were into that stuff. We loved playing sports, or we probably wouldn't have ended up here. But I look back now, and I wonder whether I had like a fascination with like, I remember being really crappy at like this thing that we had to do the stiff arm hang. 
And from one year to the next, I went from being, hold, being able to hold the stiff arm hang for like two and a half seconds, right? Like they needed literally a stopwatch with a 100th timer to get me. And then the next year, like the expectation was, you know, 60 seconds is good as, and I could do it. And I, I wanted to know why. And then I, you know, was really into BMX racing and hockey. And so I would, you know, run hills and do intervals and actually make workouts on a chalkboard in the garage and stuff. And I look back and I realize now that was probably a bit weird for someone in the fifth or sixth grade. And I remember running a half marathon when I was 11 with my PE teacher and no one else did that. At the time, I thought it was kind of normal, right? I wasn't an exceptional athlete at anything, but that kind of just carried me through that interest in, in, different, uh, in different training modalities and stuff like that. And then when, um, when my sports career, which I should have seen coming a long time sooner, but when my sports career didn't go to where I thought or where I delusionally dreamed it was going to go to, I kind of just got into coaching in university. So it was just coaching. I must be a coach because I need to do this. And then I realized that the coach that I really want to be is that person that's not medical and not necessarily, you know, standing behind the bench at the hockey game, but the person that's kind of working with both of those groups and, mm -hmm. and, and we didn't know what it was called, you know, at the time. It's not like there was an internet. You couldn't just Google it. So I guess I started in strength conditioning before I knew that it was called strength conditioning. Yeah, right on. Interesting, interesting stuff. And so you've come from Canada and you, you, uh, you progressed through university. And then what was your, your first job was at a university level? And then you ended up coming out to Australia. And, and tell us about that. Yeah, so I, um, I started to... Uh, to, you know, without really someone telling me this, it just seemed really obvious that if you wanted to create a profession where most people I interacted with, they, they weren't aware of the profession. Like now, if you talk to a coach, certainly anywhere in Australia, but most places in the world, and you say, I, I want to do strength conditioning, or I want to do sports science, or I want to do biome biomechanics, they know what that is. So bear in mind, when I was trying to get gigs, I wasn't even trying to get paid. I was just trying to have people understand what the hell I was trying to do, you know, the role that I played. So I had to start out where I had to become an assistant coach for a bunch of different sports. So I was like, okay, you know, become a weightlifting coach and become a, a half-assed weightlifting coach in order to maybe help those weightlifters with their, their strength training or their mobility work. And I did the same thing with hockey and actually got a lot of hockey credentials in ice hockey and um, I did the same thing with beach volleyball because you had to kind of be a bit of a slashy to get that going. And by my last year of university, the, um, the basketball team realized I didn't have my ice hockey scholarship anymore. And they said, look, we'll give you our, our coach scholarship. And, and, you know, and I knew, I know nothing about basketball and, and, and actually don't even really like the game that much, but um, I love jumping. And so I was given, I was the assistant basketball coach, but really I was the assistant to the assistant. And so I ended up, you know, being the strength conditioning coach and, and all that kind of stuff. But again, this is still, like, we're still using rotary phones at this time, right? So there wasn't this worldwide web of information sharing. So I think my first title in that gig was physical preparation coach. Um, yeah. And then a couple of years later, I remember <clears throat> I got paid $2,000 for the season to be the strength and conditioning coach. And that was the first time we used that title. And that was for a college volleyball team in Western Canada. And it was $2,000 a season. And I was like, and that was about, I don't know, seven years into this journey. And I was like, I've made it, you know, like I don't have to teach first aid courses on the weekend as much. And 
I don't have to, you know, be a lifeguard at the beach or at the pool or whatever other, I wasn't doing anything dodgy to make ends meet, but I was doing a lot of things to make ends meet. Um, and so that's kind of for me when I really gave me that belief effect at that stage that I could build on that. Like if a college volleyball team could value that, then, you know, that, then I, I, I could keep going. Classic, classic. That's yeah. That, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And then what happened? What brought you out to Australia? How how did that come about? Well, Australia, Australia for me was was a bit of a promised land as someone who, when my hockey career was over, and I kind of had an identity crisis. I was like, well, who who am I as an athlete? Because I, you know, I I didn't accomplish what I wanted to do in sprint cycling or in in hockey, and I kind of just went surfing. Like I I. I resonate with that and I'd never surfed. So I started surfing and all that kind of stuff. So for me then the first time I went to Australia, it was to see Australia and to get some work and to see the place. And then um, I went back quite a few years later. So this was like in the early nineties. Um, and then in the early two thousands, I was, you know, I, I kind of had an okay resume going. I'd, I'd accidentally worked with people who were good at their sport and I didn't screw them up um, too badly. And they were successful. And they were from this huge variety of sports, some Americans, some Europeans, some Canadians. Um, but I realized, like, I got hit by a car while training for some age group competitions on a, on a bicycle. Got hit by a car and got screwed up pretty badly and went through the rehabilitation process. Learned a lot from that, but also had a bit of a shock where it was like, you you spend 50 to 60 like and you only get paid if you're coaching you don't have any skill to sell the world unless you're literally picking up weights and putting them on bars or pushing people into positions or whatever you know no one was paying me for periodized plans no one was paying me for anything else so i really realized that my my ability to produce an income was going to be taken away from me because i felt what old age feels like <laughs> really, you know, pretty young, you know, this is 2001, I got smoked by that car. So um, that's when I decided to do a master's degree. And Warren Young was in Australia. And um, I, you know, I didn't evaluate where to go based on the university. I looked at it like, whose writing style do I like? Because I got given some advice that when you do your master's by research, it's to learn how to write. So it was really simple. I was like, I want to write like Warren. So I started ringing them. Um, email was invented at this time. <laughs> so I was emailing them, but we we're also talking on the phone and it just seemed like a good fit. So I went to Australia. I moved to Ballarat, lasted five days. It's really cold and it's not near the ocean. Turns out Jan Juk is an hour away. So I based myself in Jan Juk. I continued to work with my athletes from North America. Had a wonderful experience there. Got a got a grant from the AIS to do some agility research. Met some amazing people. Spent four months out in Perth. Uh, started a long-standing relationship with ECU that that is still going to this day. Um, got some friends that are, you know, um, real tight from that time period. And then um, moved back to Canada. And then moved back for the AIS gig, which was which was a dream come true. And that was uh, 2005. Yeah, right. And the AIS gig was with volleyball, if I'm not uh, not mistaken. Yeah, I think my name came up um, and and stuck long enough to be considered because of volleyball and track and field background. 
um, and a, and a bit of a bit of swimming. Um, you know, we used to joke it's the Australian Institute of Swimming, not the Australian Institute of Sport, right? Because Australia loves swimming, even if you're not even if you're not that successful with swimming. It's like he's got swimming experience that might have got me over the line. I'd worked with some, so I'd worked with the Canadian national team um, in swimming. So, um, and a fairly famous physiologist uh, in swimming, I had assisted him. So maybe that that helped as well but the the position was titled uh strength and power scientist yeah cool 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 and i know you're you said before you love jumping is one of the things you 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 love and uh that obviously at the aos is you started doing your phd and and tell us a bit about that and and what what that was about yeah so for me i think i love jumping because i'm just absolutely terrible at it um but i I love the the complexity, but yet the simplicity of what performance looks like. You, you the thing about the thing about jumping, there is no there's no confusion about what success looks like when you're making an interve- intervention. The point of jumping is to jump as high as possible. Now, even if you have complex jumps where you're trying to create a parabola like a horizontal jump, which I'm not an expert in. Um, but uh, even if it's a skill-based while you're jumping, primarily if you're vertical jumping, you're trying to jump as high as possible. There's a bunch of variables we look at, but those variables, they're, they're all subordinate to it. So I love the simplicity of that. So for me, working with the volleyball team and also having relevance to, say, swimmers in a start or pushing off the wall, track and field athletes in, in various different events in terms of how they produce their impulse, there was a lot of things I could do with volleyball that which is a sport i love working with um that i could transfer so i felt useful right so if you feel useful it's always a really good thing in your job and so i i was able to tick along and do a phd phd while working in volleyball and we traveled a lot with volleyball because you know australia you know your nearest neighbor is new zealand and they, they don't take volleyball that seriously so you're gonna have to travel a lot so I just, I just literally did all my research with the guys that we were working with. Um, and then I wrote my papers when we were on flights. When other people were taking a sleeping pill, I was ordering an extra espresso and just bang out those papers and learn to write better and send it over to Robbie Newton and Mike McGuigan the first time we stopped. And by the time we finished playing Argentina or whatever for the week, I had my reviews back and it was actually – it was really cool. Rob and Mike were amazing in adapting to my schedule. It was, it was great. Yeah, cool, cool. And and for the people listening out here, what would what would you say you got out of your PhD in terms of like not what you got personally, but you delivered to the strength conditioning community? Like, how do you jump higher, for instance? What what are the things that make us jump higher? Yeah, yeah. So I guess a couple key take homes is that things don't have to look um, specific to the sport, they could be specific to a particular quality that the athlete is lacking. And so if you can explore and diagnose what they might be lacking, zoom out and see all the variables of interest, what you see in the weight room, what their personality is like, everything that a coach considers, plus some, some, some reference points. So reference points like, well, you know, what is this jump? style compared to that jump style and and are they better at this one or that one well that might give you some level of evidence to not make a decision for you but to maybe help guide you in your decision making for the 
for the training program and you could explore unique jumps, you know, um, particularly, I guess, with my PhD, the population I worked with, they're jumping a lot. So more jumping does nothing. Like it doesn't do anything more counter movement jumps, more block jumps, more spike jumps. All that does is influence your ability to work with their already existing patellar tendinopathy, which they're all going to have. They're jumping thousands of times per week. So you don't want to add more jumps. You don't want to take away all their jumps, but you don't want to add more jumps. They're already doing enough on the volleyball court. So you want to kind of be really uh, savage and targeting, you know, does this guy need just get a lot stronger? Does he need stability? Does he need, um, you know, more posterior chain work? Does he need accentuated eccentrics like a depth jump? So accentuated eccentric via velocity, or will he benefit accentuated eccentric via load? Um, like having an extra load in the eccentric aspect, releasing that load and then jumping up or, you know, what part along the force velocity spectrum should we be loading them? Should be they doing jump squats with 10, 20, 30 kilos or should it be 70, 80? And then obviously there's time of year decisions and all sorts of other stuff. So, mm. but I mean, I'm rambling. There's still a life's work in this area. So for sure. anyone out there, like go for it. <laughs> I've got a question that just popped up in my head right now. So if you were going to choose between extenuated eccentric methods, so your depth jump or you're holding dumbbells, dropping them on the way down and then uh, coming up and jumping onto a box or something like that, how would you pick one or the other for a, for a particular person? Oh, yeah, really good question. I thought you were going to make me pick one without being able to ask any questions. <laughs> I was going to say, don't be a jerk. It depends. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, what I would, what I would look at. Um, so if you do a depth jump profile, what you can do is you can look at like, how do they respond in terms of their jump performance off of say four or five different heights? That's helpful. But then you can look at, well, how do they go with a concentric only versus a counter movement jump? And then how does the counter movement jump compared to those depth jumps? Because let's say you had someone who is, um, really good off 40 and 50 centimeters and let's say they touch uh, let's say they're a taller guy like you and they touch say 320 centimeters and they can touch 320 off of a 40 centimeter box and that's their best jump height and their counter movement jump they can only touch say 305 well this guy is this guy being you this guy has got a really well developed stretch load tolerance so under velocity conditions where you're hitting the earth faster because you're accelerating um, from that higher height, you're really able to tolerate that. But then I might look at your counter movement jump profile and uh, I might look at your loaded jumps profile and look at the, uh, the amortization phase, look at the nature of the curve, um, look at how you respond to different loading conditions. And then what I would do is, acute, and if let's say, um, I wanted to see if you'd be a good candidate for accentuated eccentrics. I would look at how you look on the force plate with a few different accentuated eccentrics. So let's try with 20 extra kilos. Let's try with 30 extra kilos. Let's try with 40 extra kilos and see how you respond. If you respond poorly to that, as in your jump is worse with the extra load in the eccentric at only say, 25 or 30% additional body weight, this is a window of adaptation we can exploit because that's not good enough. 
So there's no paper that I wrote out there on that. These are just kind of numbers in my head. But if uh, you weigh, what do you weigh, 90? 90. If you weigh 90 kilos and I give you 25 kilos extra and you drop down, release it at the bottom and jump up and your jump isn't at least 5% better, you either don't know how to do the exercise yet or there's something wrong with your ability to transfer through that amortization phase and utilize that increase in myogenic potential. Because so when is 5% better than my counter movement jump. Yeah, yeah, at least 5%. I'd love to see it at eight or nine. Then you're kind of well adapted to it. But I would look at a few different loads. I mean, because if I give you 60 kilograms, I'd expect that to, to double you over a little bit. I wouldn't expect that to help your jump compared to your counter movement jump because it's, it's getting a little too heavy. But when you do this extra eccentric, what we think is happening is you're just in a better position, like the myogenic aspects of, of, of muscle function are in a better position because your body's preparing for heavier load. Then you artificially remove it just by releasing, opening up your hands, but you're still in that position, right? If the timing is good and then you jump. This is what we think is happening. The reason why we think that's happening instead of more neurogenic is that it doesn't increase the speed at which you do your dip. Um, so there really isn't that, and it doesn't, in, it doesn't change your form so much that it increases the range. And if we really want to stimulate neurogenic and be confident that it's neurogenic, you're going to either do the dip faster as a strategy, or you're going to do it over a longer period of time. And neither of those two things are happening. So that's why I say the myogenic part of it. And so I would exploit that myogenic part of it. Um, but usually a guy that gets crippled by say a 30% load, um, that guy's also, you can, they're all, they also tend to be kind of, kind of weaker in your traditional stuff. So you're like, oh, geez, you know, you're just, you don't lift as much iron as the other guys. Kinda. Mm -hmm. Usually it sticks out there too, but I would do the test to confirm it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. It's really interesting. Really interesting. And so you've done this PhD on jumps, you've worked with volleyball, and then you decide to move to Queensland and you eventually end up at Surfing Australia. Uh, well, it's actually New South Wales, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you move up north and you end up at Surfing Australia. And from there, you've gone from this regimented Olympic, uh, to some degree, Olympic uh, campaigns to working with uh, surfers that are not the most reliable species at best of times, even when they're fully professional. So tell us yeah. about that. What, 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 how has that changed for you and, and, and what happened with, with that role at Surfing Australia? Yeah, that's a really insightful comment, particularly because when I moved to Queensland, I kept working with those volleyball players, but I also started working with some other athletes and, uh, and, uh, and an amazing team like Kieran Young and Anthony Georgie and Michael Davey and Suki and Biff. And, you know, like it was, it was a really cool crew. Like I, to, to me, I look at those two years at QAS and I was like, some of the athletes I worked with were like just amazing freaks and, and, and the people I worked with were, were really great people. Um, and then I went to surfing Australia and if I could go back and give myself advice, I'd say, slow down and calm down. <laughs> Cause there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work here. And, um, and I, I didn't need like, I, and I'm going to paraphrase my buddy Scotty, but you don't have to fix, you just have to make it better. And so I would see things and I'd be like, oh my God, like that's terrible, right? And so then I'd be like, 
I'd ring up Starkey, the CEO, and be like, do you know this is going on or whatever? And like, just really like, there was just a lot of stuff. And then I, I, I mean, I, I had a long-term plan in the role, um, but it just changed all the time. Like talk about having a long-term plan that you just doesn't look anything like it after a month because opportunities came through. Like it was like the plan was in the first year that I would set up high performance systems and structures. And then we would have this building and then we would have this home. And then I would start working with surfers, like actually working with surfers. Um, but on like day three, I got this call. Hi, my name's Wade Carmichael. I'm 16 years old and you know, I'm looking for an edge. I really want to follow through and, and, and come good on my aspirations to be a professional surfer. And I'm like, I don't know who Wade Carmichael is. Right. But you know, I looked it up and I'm like, Oh, you're a pro junior. And so I started working with Wade Carmichael and then, you know, so I started working with surfers and I had no place to train them and we're testing paddling in the Corumban sanctuary or the Corumban estuary. And we're using gym facilities, public gym facilities and all this kind of stuff. And so in a really good way, it ended up being like, okay, here's an opportunity. I'll just follow that one. Right. So I had, I had engagement from parts of the community and just, you know, kind of went after it and then um, kind of realized that there were going to be segments of the surfing community that was really ready for high performance thinking and actually knew what that looked like. And there were segments that were ready, willing, but not necessarily able. So I could help them with the ability to be a bit more able, introduce them to whether it's sport, sport psychology, like bringing in Jason Patchell or, you know, whatever it was, um, you know, bringing in Damien Farrow for scale acquisition. Um, and then there was going to be segments that they were unwilling and un, unable. And I just thought, well, if some, if there's segments of the surfing community that are unwilling, like that's, that's cool too. Like not all segments of high performance are going to apply to all segments of surfing. And it would actually be insane to think that that was realistic. Just like there's, there's rock climbers who eat well and sleep well and care about their body. And there's rock climbers who don't, right. And they, they're still part of the climbing community. Right. Um, it just is what it is. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a it, whether you want to call it the X games or the, the board sports, but it's a, it's a totally different, uh, different nature working with people. And, and that kind of brings us to where you are now, um, which is back in Canada. And, uh, what you've got going on with Canada Snowboard. Yeah. So I, um, I never thought I'd like, I, I really loved my job at surfing Australia and people who come up to me and go, you lived in Cabarita beach and you had this cool gig. Like, why would you ever, you know, voluntarily leave or whatever. And I always remind people, I'm like, you know, I did that. Right. It's not like I gave it up. I did it. And then I, you know, moved on and change is good for the sport but it's also good, you know, for the individual. And there's no way I would say that I needed a new challenge. I had a lifetime of challenges left. I, 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 don't, I don't resonate with that expression when people say I need a new challenge, um, but not because I, I don't believe them. I'm not calling BS on them. I'm just saying like, for me, I've, maybe I'm just dumb, but I've always been challenged and I could have stayed at QAS for the rest of my life. I had challenges. I could have stayed at AIS for the rest of my life. I had challenges. So for me, it was more like um, a bit of a lifestyle thing. We'd had Jake 
and I, we, we didn't intend to move back to Canada because my son was born, but we did sort of see that that would be something that could be good, but we never thought there'd be a job that I would want to take. And of course, Tracy's out of the workforce, being a full-time caregiver for young Jake, right, at this time. So it was really about, well, there's really never anything logical that would come up. And a few things came up, but they weren't good fits at all. Like I wasn't, you know, there's a couple sports where I was like, I am not going to work with that sport. Um, You're not going to leave Cabaret to Beach working with surfing, traveling around the world for just anything, are you? Exactly. It's got to be the right thing. Exactly. Um, And then I got this chance to come back and, and help in the way that I'm trying to help with the Canadian Sport Institute, which is very much um, strategy and leadership. I'm uh, accountable for a fair bit, but not responsible for much, if, if you understand my meaning, with the Canadian Sport Institute. Um, so it's really about planting seeds and, and mentoring other people, which is, which is really valuable to me personally. I find it really serves a purpose for me. Um, and then Canada Snowboard, which is, you know, uh, they call it over here, they call it an integrated support team. So you have this integrated support team lead, which is your, your coaches and your uh, doctors and your physios and everyone that helps with performance. And so I kind of have this non-hierarchical leadership role with that group as the IST uh, lead. Um, and then I'm hands-on coaching with our slope style team. So that's who I travel with. Um, that's who, as a snowboard discipline with Canada, that's at present who we're most successful at, in you know, followed probably closely by half pipe and para snowboarding. And then we have two other racing disciplines, which were really trying to get back to a level where they were quite, quite uh, world beating 10 years ago. So um, yeah, that's the kind of the scope of the job now. Yeah, right on, right on. Very interesting, man. It's, it's a wonderful journey and, and really uh, inspiring journey as well. For, for coaches that have known you and and uh, and uh, sort of tagged along in your coattails like myself, mm-hmm. um, I want to move to. Uh, you gave a talk last year at the ACA conference, and I yeah. want to discuss some of that talk. That that talk was on performance models and the preparation framework. So, you've you've got your in Canada, you've got these performance models for say snowboard, or you're in Australia, you've got these performance models for surfing. But first of all, for the listeners out there. Why is this stuff important? What, what, is it, what is it actually and, and why is it important? Well, I guess for me, it's, um, and I use this term a fair bit, is like, what does success look like? You know, so I'm having discussion. Let's say you and I want to work on a, we want to work on a project together. We want to better integrate something. A question, if I'm feeling a little uncertain about exactly whether we're aligned, I want to have a mutual ownership of performance because that's what makes us a team. If you and I have a discussion and we have an objective and we share that objective, we're still a group. But if we share an objective, we need each other in order to be successful as a, as a group and as individuals. And we have a mutual understanding of what success looks like, then we become a team. So I'll often ask the question, Joseph, what does success look like in your view? And make sure that it's the same as for me. And if it's not, I'll discuss it. Well, for me, a performance model is what does winning look like? Does everyone understand what winning looks like? Because what winning looks like to one IST member might be no injuries. But that's not probable at all. 
Um, there's no evidence to suggest that we're going to have no injuries for a week, let alone a year, right? So we need to make sure that we're aligned on what that performance model looks like, and we need to be able to measure it. Because if it's important, we should measure it so that we can then set objectives against it. So for me, that's what a performance model is, is understanding what the sport is. And then the part I talk about, the master and the servant, the preparation framework being the servant, for me, that's just a reminder to myself. It's essentially in place of a coaching philosophy. Because a lot of, and I did too early in my career, a lot of coaches have a clearly defined coaching philosophy. But my philosophy has changed on the context so quickly that that doesn't work for me. I'm not saying it doesn't work with all humility. It just doesn't work for me. I need frameworks. So for me, this is my, this is in place of my coaching philosophy. So if I start working with volleyball again tomorrow, what I need to understand is what is the modern performance model while I've been on the bench? Like while I've missed out on the sport for the last 10 years, what has happened? What's the data say? What are the players doing? What does winning look like? And then what are the common preparation frameworks? And then how do we find what we're going to do better than everybody else? What's our competitive advantage within that preparation framework? And what I like about it, Joseph, sorry to go on so much, but what I like about the preparation framework is it's everyone. It's everyone from administrators. So I will present to our administrators on the performance model so that they understand that they might be an accountant at Canada Snowboard. And I'll say to them, whatever you did before you came here, you're, we're all in the business of snowboard performance now. We're all in that business. Uh, whether you're the janitor or the accountants, or whether you're trying to help people race on a snowboard or boost out of a half pipe, we're all in snowboard performance. So that performance model and that preparation framework is about everything we do. We don't do medicals because you're supposed to do medicals. We do medicals because that serves the preparation framework to then have a cascade of effects from those medicals to ensure that we find all the things in the preparation framework, whether it's biological, immunological, nutritionally, uh, musculoskeletal, whatever it is, so that we can then help people get better scores or beat people in a race on snowboards. Right on, right on. So, and just to give like a real living, breathing example of this, I, I hope you don't mind sharing. What is like the performance model for for you right now with Canada Snowboard? Is it get better scores uh, in your slope style, and then how did you put that into a preparation framework? Sure, it's um, it's 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 pretty nuanced, right? And it's pretty individual. So let me just use um a, an example. I'll use a real example. So you have a rider. And you have their, uh, you, you have, well, actually, before we even get to the rider, you have the sport at the elite level. You need to know what everyone's doing. So let's take slope style, where I work 90% of the time. I, I, I'm not in the daily tra training environment of the other snowboard disciplines. It's all for me, big air and slope. So you've got, like, who's doing what? And where is it trending? So what's the historical data? What were people doing in 2011, 2012, 2013? You need to know where the sport has been, not that you can then predict, prediction is a fallacy, but you can start to create a framework of probabilities of where the sport might go. So this is the rate of progression over time. So this may be where it's going. But then you can look and you can get cultural feedback from coaches and, and, and judges. I talk to judges a lot. 
where could the sport be going? What kind of tools are we going to need to upgrade for riders who are, say, on the left or the right of the podium? We want to get them on the middle. And then you can start to understand where you currently are against current gaps and then look at where you'd need to get ahead of the curve so that they are no longer fighting for second and third, but fighting for first. So you'd start to look at the trick magnitude, the jump amplitude, the amount of height that they're getting, how long they're holding their grab, what different grabs they have in their toolbox, um, what their rail game is like, how many different directions they can spin on and off a rail, um, where their weak rotation is, where their strongest rotation is, so where their nuclear weapon can be, and then where their, their backup force can be. And also looking at course building and how courses might change, because like a, a simple thing, like everyone got really excited about having transition features instead of a straight jump this year, and that really exposed a lot of people. People who'd normally be on the podium didn't hit a single podium. So you need to be aware of those kind of things as well and gather that information. Then you need to benchmark your individual. So let's go down to that individual. And you say, look, your switchback, your switchback 14 is a very difficult trick, but you do it very, very well. And the rest of the field, if they can even spin a switchback nine, it really drops off for people that can spin switchback 12, let alone switchback 14. So if we're going to add a 16 to your repertoire, you know, maybe that's the riders like, I, I feel more confident going switchback 16. So then that becomes a performance plan. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that go on in a slope style course, so let's not make it too confusing. We'll just focus on the switchback 16 as a project, right? She might have two rail tricks, you might have a knee injury, you might have a broken ankle from a year ago, all these things that need to be addressed in the preparation framework. But just in terms of the plan, you need to look at, well, what are the psychological tools that they're going to need in order to go after that trick? Because that's a trick that very few people have done. So and I think it's just Canadian guys, to be honest. Um, I don't want to, maybe some Japanese guys, but I think that trick is kind of a, maybe two of the, our guys, right? So do they have the belief effect to do something that almost no one has ever done before, right? Do they have the physical ability to absorb the landing because they're spinning more? That's, that's a more injurious oriented landing. So are they ready for that? Do we have the tools, like for example, microsensor monitors in place so that we can quantify the load that we're doing on that trick, but also on all the other tricks, so they don't just go, I don't know, what do you want to do today? Oh, let's try switch back 16, like try it until I die. You know, like you gotta be smart about it, right? You gotta take your rest when you need to take your rest and you gotta know how bad are those landings. Um, we need to look at opportunities. How many days are we gonna get with good weather on a good jump for you to do that trick. So this is like, we're talking your travel schedule, your travel agent, we're talking about your regular agent. You know, we, we, we gotta talk about, well, now are we gonna have the sleep strategies to make it realistic that you're gonna go to Switzerland for that window? But you know, we probably don't want you doing switchback 16 on day two if you've got horrible nutrition, altitude, and sleep adaptation. Like those are three ones that can really kill that project. Um, so yeah, so it really is a myriad of different things that go into it. And, and it might be little low hanging fruit, man. It might be like, okay, in your switchback. So you and I are both uh, regular foot or your goofy foot, right? Goofy foot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'll do it this way for you. So you're goofy foot. So you're going into the jump left foot forward, right? 
if your left thoracic rotation is really, really, really limited, and by limited, I mean above average for a normal human, that's really limited for a snowboarder or a surfer, right? If your left rotation is really limited, we don't just need to know that because you're not counter rotating enough to get the snap that you need. Who cares about how hard you can throw a medicine ball? If you can't get into that position, even if we get you into that position, it might be weeks or months before we can get you powerful into that position and out of that position. But also if we artificially get you into that position, does that change your edge? Because you could die if we don't slowly acquire the skill to keep that toe edge while rotating the other direction. Like that's, you know, from snowboarding, that's, that's really hard to do. So now we're talking about, okay, we found some low hanging fruit, but it's not as simple as, oh, we'll do a couple bow and arrow stretches. And all of a sudden your switch back 16 is going to come around. There's, there might be a cascade of like six or seven different things that need to be done in order to now utilize that new range, which we'll have to achieve in, in order to get it. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So interesting. And it's, it's definitely, as you say, the, the preparation framework has to serve the performance model and, and you want to be doing things that have meaningful, meaningful impact on those performances. And if they're not, you have to question why they're actually in there in the first place. Yeah. Mate, well, so I'm, I'm going to bring this forward I'm, and, and uh, it also popped up like you just talked about mobility, say for instance, in the, in the, in the uh, thoracic spine and, and rotation in the trick. And one of your big interest areas is mobility. Again, you, you gave a presentation at the conference last year on it. And yeah. so you've talked a little bit about why it's important, but I want to dive deeper into what is your thought process on mobility? What do you look for as an assessment process? How do you fish things out? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I find really interesting is that you, you probably want to start with what are the ranges that they need for the sport? Um, and I think, you know, I know you admire and have learned a lot from track and field coaches. I think athletics coaches, track and field coaches are really good at asking this question. Um, they're really good. And, and I, I don't think we, sh I think we should, we should adopt that when we talk about mobility is what ranges are important for their sport. Also, what ranges are going to help them in terms of longevity as well. Um, I think those two are, are really key. So you can start with that because some sports, let's face it, require a greater than normal range, which may actually compete with their, their longevity, right? Like we all know of sports where the range, like ice hockey goalies have a range that decentrates certain joints and it, it's going to affect them likely for the rest of their life if they, if they played at high volume. So I'm not saying, oh, don't. I'm just saying you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware of it. Um, so I think that's really, uh, that's really key. And then look at, ask yourself the question, well, if they had more range in that area than they typically need for their sport, will it help them or potentially hurt them? Because I think there's some examples where having greater than more range, if you can create stability and strength in that end range, it could be there for them when things go really bad, right? So an example would be like um, a, uh, or, or sorry, for, for, for a training application. So a training application would be like uh, sprint cyclists on the velodrome. They don't need 
to get into a super, super, super deep position like a deep squat. But if they can do that properly and they have good mobility in that, it opens up a whole bunch of training tools that will allow you to get them, potentially get them faster on the bike. So even though they don't go into those knee positions and those hip positions, you want them to be able to. But then there's some where you'd be like, well, actually, if they can get into that range, that, that could be really bad. So you need to, I think you need to evaluate that sport by sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always find mobility and, and you can sort of toss around different definitions for flexibility or mobility, but I always find mobility is one of the sort of uh, chinks in most strength and conditioning coaches' armor in terms of like, you say to them, hey, get a guy to squat two times body weight. They go, yeah, right on. Get a guy to do the splits. And they're like, whoa, there's no way that's happening. Yeah. Um, so it, it, this is a really interesting like thought process and, and one looking at the sport, what do you need for the sport? What do you need for longevity? And then also are there training implications around those flexibility requirements that you might not be able to do something that you could, that could potentially make you better. So yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, you, you talk a bit about hand and foot function. Mm-hmm. in regards to mobility tell us about that so what i've noticed and again like i'm not a researcher in this area i know that some people in australia kind of got to know who i was by reading research that i'd published but like in my undergraduate no one accused me of being a scientist right so i'm really just like an observationalist who who did that afterwards because it you know helped me become better as a coach So what I'm telling you is just with, as a coach, what I've observed working in sports where the ankle range is really key, like in volleyball and then in surfing and now in snowboarding, ankle range is is really key. It provides, it allows them to produce more force, to be propulsive, which is key performance indicator for them, but also it it has a protective effect for for injury. And, And there is science behind that. What's not scientific though is I just find that if your foot is if your foot is jammed up and loses all its mobility or your or your hand and you don't have strength in the foot and you don't have mobility in the foot you lose those two which is very easy in snowboarding because you're you're stuck in a boot all the time it will detrain the foot and then the foot will no longer contribute as a stabilizer and then other muscles don't do their job necessarily as prime movers or prime stabilizers they become they're just kind of helping you avoid bad stuff basically. And so the detraining of the foot in snowboarders is, is it's really quite outstanding how easy it is to see, you know, like a lot of professional snowboarders can't move their toes independently. Uh, They can't do what a typical surfer would take for granted. They can't do what a jujitsu athlete uh, with good foot function would take for granted. And so um, to me, it's definitely, there's a lot of footwork that we do a little bit of work with, with the hands, but also extremity strength. You know, like if I worked in hockey and gridiron football, martial arts, of course, or, you know, which I don't, but I, I'd want guys with strong hands. I'd want strong hips too, for sure. But strong hands, strong feet. I think it's pretty critical because I think it can sabotage mobility in other areas. Uh, but also, we need that mobility. We we need wrist mobility or wrists break. We need foot mobility or knees knees tear. We got ligament tears. Yeah, hundred percent. So, all right, what do you do for uh, hand and feet function? Um, see this and go. Oh, I need to get them more mobile, but 
yeah, how do I do it? But what, yeah. what do you actually do? Well, for first of all, I feel that right now the general standard of pretty good in strength conditioning, we're pretty good at individualizing programs based on neuromuscular profiles, even if we don't have advanced equipment. So if we have a box and a vertex, we can do it some form of neuromuscular profile. If you have a position transducer, great, force plates, even better, et cetera. But we're doing that. We're in, even if you're going back to what I used to do back in the early 90s, Charles Poliquin stuff, uh, is your front squat less than 80% of your back squat? Um, is it 85? Okay, is it below 80? If it's below 80, we're gonna call that a deficiency in the front squat, right? we're able to make a few choices based on observation. But in mobility, I don't see enough of what I personally think is really valuable. And, and I, I, I don't wanna be judgmental, just more trying to offer a new perspective. But, and I've had some great, great conversations with Dan Baker about this, but like, for me, if I'm gonna spend, and you're gonna spend, and Dan's gonna spend hours looking at neuromuscular information, design an individual print training program, and then our approach is to walk in the gym with our hands in our pockets, if it's me, I'd be barefoot, but walk in barefoot with our hands in our pockets and just be like, okay guys, we'll get started in 15 minutes, foam rollers are over there, mats are over there, intuitive mobility. They're doing intuitive mobility at home, they're professional athletes, they can do all the intuitive stuff they want. I need to show them, a savagely detailed hard tissue, soft tissue program. Like what's the software issue of motion that you need to restore in that hand, that foot, that hamstring, the hip, whatever it is, what's the hardware issue? So people, when I'm running a session, I'm actually coaching it based on a mobility profile that tells me like that pec is not, able to let them get in that position because there's a hardware issue. So that's the therapist. That's the lacrosse ball, not here's a basket of stuff, roll around and talk crap for half an hour instead of being purposeful. That's a terrible way to start a program in terms of mental performance, right? Talk crap in the hallway. When we come in, we're here to get better at snowboarding right here, right now, right at the start. We're here to get better at snowboarding. So Mikey, you're triggering your lats. Darcy, you're triggering your TFL. Mark, you're triggering your glutes. And if they wanna know why, it's my favorite question, right? Because it means they really wanna get better at snowboarding. They wanna know why is this gonna get me better at snowboarding? You release that, this motion will work better, that leads to this, switch back 16, brother. You know, like, connect all those dots and it might be 21 different points but you know we've got to get in there and understand those things in terms of hands and feet frequency is really important i think small joints just working it frequently frc stuff i find can be really helpful uh, so functional range conditioning work i do like a lot of different crawls and things like that i think there's also something just really raw and savage and fun about having grown men and grown women making different shapes and learning to move their bodies in ways that generally in society, like in the skate park and at home and at the grocery store, and even on a snowboard, they're making that shape, but not in that way. And so they're, you know, crawling around doing these kind of things and, you know, supporting their body weight with their fingers and all this kind of stuff. And it's fun. And they got onto snowboarding because it's fun, right? So 
if we can also have fun in training and make monkey sounds and be bears and do some jujitsu and wrestle and all this kind of stuff, it's great. And it makes all the, you know, me giving them the, here's your, you know, FRC thing. This is, no, you're doing it wrong. You're breathing wrong, whatever. It makes all that a little bit more tolerable when they get to, you know, Mikey and Darcy get to have a wrestle or whatever, you know? 100%. Vitamin F. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Vitamin F. Never mind vitamin D, boys. We're going to talk yeah. about vitamin F. <laughs> um, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I want to know, now we've talked about, uh, and we're going to be like heading towards the end of, uh, end of our time on the podcast, Jeremy, but I want to know what's, how do you fit mobility into the overall program? And then what, so you've mentioned at the start of, of your session, and it might be someplace. And then how does that overall program look over a, a typical week? And when I say typical, I realize there's no such thing for a yeah. surfer or a snowboarder as in, as in other sports like football or things like that, because the manager might call them up and say, hey, you you got a boat trip on and uh, Indo tomorrow, you want to go, like Kelly's on it, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, but for a typical week, um, yeah. what, what would it look like for you and where would mobility sit within that week? Yeah, it's very insightful you to phrase it that way with the surfer example. It's not different uh, from a snowboarder, um, but it's very different from a rugby league player where a typical week for, say, 10 weeks of their life could, could actually be typical for, for 10 weeks. Um, so for us, we have a couple weeks of the year like that. So those are those weeks where there is no, let's call it an on, no on snow opportunities, no on snow opportunities. So what they're doing in those time periods are training, training full time. So, um, it could be that, um, we have a main session in the morning. Um, and you know, this is subject to change, right? But say last, last time we had this opportunity where we had no on snow opportunities, we'd have, um, uh, meet at the gym at eight. Uh, we'd revisit our purpose for the day. Uh, we'd revisit our purpose for that time period. Uh, get started with specifics, individualized mobility work, 8.15. Some guys, that would take them 45 minutes um, because there might be some treatment in there. Sometimes it might be an hour and 15 minutes um, if it's a little longer. So let's say Therese or Gian uh, or Mike Conway, one of our therapists, is in the gym that day. Um, that We might take a break three times during that 45 minutes to treat a, treat a tissue, which then becomes an hour and 15. Okay, and then they have, uh, we just check in on nutrition at that stage, make sure that they're topped up and ready to do, you know, a larger workout. And then they have their, their, their larger workout, whether it's uh, focused on strength, power, conditioning, or whatever. Um, and so that would be, say, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, and then we try to give them weekends off because most of these guys, uh, well, not the whole weekend, but uh, at least Saturday afternoon and Sunday, because most of these guys have friends that have more traditional jobs and, and they get very little time at home. So I like them to be able to go camping up in, you know, up here in Pemberton or go into the, go into the mountains in the summer and, and go to some lakes and stuff. So we like to give them at least uh, like a day and a half. So they might have six main sessions, Monday to Saturday. And then in the afternoon, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, for those that need it, they might have more mobility work. So we might meet at one of the lakes. They do a bit of warm-up, uh, additional mobility work. It might be yoga-based. It might be foundation training-based. It might be FRC-based. But I don't really deliver things like that. I blend them in and individualize them, and then some things are, are general. 
and then we might be tagging on a, a, a low neuromuscular conditioning session. So it might be a swim uh, in the lake for half an hour or something like that. Uh, once, when, when we're on snow, it's a lot of mobility as its own session. So the main thing is like, okay, let's say we got a guy with a cranky ankle. He might spend 30 minutes just on that ankle, on mobs, on foot strength, on, on whatever, on those ankles. And then he's got maybe another 30 minutes whole body. And maybe, you know, like Seb doesn't like yoga as much as, you know, say Mark, right? So you're going to tailor it that, that way, individualize it that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so it, it, it ranges, Joseph, from um, oh, probably say an all-time low of like 150 hours a year um, to 650 of mobility. But bear in mind, that's in, that includes, like I would classify all of our crawling and, you know, a yoga class that they do on their own, yoga stuff, foundation stuff, postural stuff. That's kind of all under, under mobility. So I'm just getting the calculator out. I'm just going to do the numbers on that for the uh, listen. It's about 12 and a half hours a week of mobility, yeah. um, potentially, uh, for, for these guys. What? When, when we're on snow, yeah. that would be typical. Uh, it, would, it would be a low of probably nine um, at the level we're working at. Because bear in mind that sport's about making shapes and changing shapes. Snowboarders and surfers make a lot of shapes compared to other sports. Like tennis, for example, it has its shapes and there's a bunch of different ones, but there are a lot of similar shapes on your forehand, on your backhand, at the net, on the baseline. Snowboarding has a lot of different shapes. Mm, for sure. And, and just to contrast that, what would be the devotion to say uh, strength and power training in the gym? Yeah. So. Um, You'd be you'd be surprised at the relative strength of of uh, of, of the riders. Um, the typical load when we're off snow would probably be between eight and ten hours um, of of what you classify as strength training um, in terms of like repeated efforts, maximal efforts, ballistic efforts, and Olympic lifts, as well as plyometrics, um, and then. During the season, because we as a program have a lot of engagement with that when we're off snow, when we're on snow and not competing, we're still able to keep a reasonable volume, right? Like it's not like we're AFL where we shift into more competition-like stuff and the load is just so high that you're like, oh, we had a simulated match play and like the next two, 48 hours, like you're not going to get anything out of it. Our load's not so much physiological, uh, unless we're talking about altitude or whatever, because we have to go to altitude a lot, but you're really able to do some moderate doses of strength training at that time. And then your microdoses are more effective. Like there's no point microdosing if you haven't met the demon at some point in the year. <laughs> like microdosing year round is just like, sweet, long-term detraining, right? You've got to do some, you've, you've got to overload and, and build up tolerance to load so there's no point in doing doubles to maintain strength if you're not strong in the first place right so if you're doing a little strength training session three days out from x games it has a lot more meaning if you acted like a badass in the weight room in july 
You bet. You bet. You got to meet the demon first. Yeah. First, you bet. Mate, that's awesome, Jeremy. I've got a couple of quick fire questions to throw at you, um, and then we'll, then we'll get you off this call because I know you got to go. What's been your big aha moment? Maybe it's from a conference colleague or course where you've just gone light bulb flash and you've gone, oh my God, all my world's problems have been solved in this one moment. <laughs> and it's something you've just been able to go, okay, I can use this immediately. Uh, from a colleague, a mental performance coach, uh, replace judgment for curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, he pointed out that that's what I did because I was trying to do a debrief of why a situation went better than it usually does. And he said, you replaced judgment for curiosity. Can you find more places to do that in your life? Um, and the answer was, yes, I definitely could. That's <laughs> cool. That's cool. It's really cool. What is the best performance that springs to mind in a competition that you've seen? From one of your surfers, your snowboarders, your volleyballers uh, that you had the pleasure of working with? That's a tough one. Um, I, oh, it's so, yeah, it's so hard to pick. Um, I'm just going to go with recent. I'm just, I'm going to apologize to every volleyball player and every surfer I worked with. Um, last, uh, in 2019 at X Games, um, Mark's run wasn't working on the course and he completely changed his run, no practice third and final run in the finals and won X games with a trick that he hadn't done in, in a long time. Um, and he wasn't too far off a, a surgery to replace some screws. That was pretty incredible. Um, and then Max Perot in practice, um, big air practice for X games, 2020, just put on a clinic, probably the best performance anyone has ever seen. And no one was there. It was just us staff. It was an evening optional practice. And he just put on a clinic of, uh cab 16 uh did back 16 he tried front 16 no sorry he did some 18 he did like two 18s it was insane and then the next day he won gold mark got silver you know it was it was in it was incredible yeah cool cool mate you must have seen some things how do people get more information like twitter is it like uh research gate they want to find more out about what jeremy shepherd does and what you have done um, I am on Twitter, but less because there's like a, I call it bitter Twitter. I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm not sure what happened to my feed, but there's a lot of people calling people idiots and, and things like that. And, um, they're running a little too hot on their opinions, but I am on Twitter sometimes and that's shepherd coach. Um, and then I do do Instagram, um, which is the same shepherd coach but I, I i try not to do political stuff um and then yeah if people want to connect like just uh reach out somehow and and i like phone calls i, I don't like emails I, I i wish we could move off emails but we can't really replace it quite yet but yeah not yet unfortunately not yet no not yet mate it has been awesome having you on the uh on the call on the podcast uh, much much appreciation uh for you and what you've done for australian strength conditioning and mate, uh, yeah thank you so much no joseph thank you for what you're doing for the asca this role that you played uh this role that you're playing i for me personally having you know met you years ago and uh you know being a part of your journey and you being a big part of my journey as well um you know the 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 
best relationships are, are co-mentors and you've been a co-mentor to me. And so someone who has done what you've done and followed the journey that you've had, but then giving back to the ASCA in the way that you do, like, you know, that's really, really important to me. And I just, I just wanted that to not go without saying that that was uh, it's a real, real point of, um, of, of enjoyment for me to see you contributing in a way that you're really good at. Um, and, you know, giving back and making our organization stronger as a result. Right. I, I, thank you. I thank you. I don't know if I'm good at it, but I'm getting better at it. I'll put it that way. <laughs> right on. I don't need to fix it. I just need to make it a little bit better, as you That's said. Right. Right. <laughs> awesome. Right. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, buddy. Take care. So that was a really, really cool for me, interviewing one of my mentors there and, and Jeremy and, and getting his insight on a whole host of topics. Now, before I leave you, we've got to thank Val Performance again. They're a great, great supporter of the ASCA and this podcast. They have had some wonderful online workshops going on recently that you should check out. Uh, anyway, of course, if you're interested in any of their products, Nordboard, Force Frame, Force Decks, make sure you check out ValPerformance.com. You can't go wrong with them. Now, I also want you to remember ASCA Conference just around the corner. Make sure you sign up for that, along with also making sure you catch up with our next podcast, which will be dropping next week during this month of October. Uh, so until we hear from yours truly next, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ASCA Podcast. <music>